that is a great reminder about the source, the place where we find truth. Um, Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. And if I could ask you guys to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs of to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Reliance. Um, I think it's still fitting even though while we just closed in prayer to go before our prayer again um, as we'd be encouraged to the scriptures. Lord, I thank you that we can come before you and that you can hear our requests. We also know that that position, that access that we have has been given to you because, to us because of you who has loved us in Christ Jesus. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, resurrecting on the third day, who sits at the right hand of the Father now. And Lord, we recognize that in faith, we we respond and go before you with these requests. And I know even in the midst of this room, we have our own struggles. And Lord, I pray that as we hear from your word today, but that we would be the people that do respond going before you with our requests and our desires and our needs rather than taking them by our own hands. 
And I, stir the, I pray that you'd stir these things concerning the early beginnings of Moses' life into our own hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses named his first son Gershon. It's strange that the reader, the writer, after reading the first two chapters, wants you to recognize what he names his son. If you're familiar with Genesis and now Exodus, the naming of children is usually carrying an aspect of hope for what you might want for the child. Yet here, Moses names his first son as a result of the problems he faced upon his own child. One of the reasons why, if you just bear with me just for a moment, why I love preaching, or just let me say it this way, why I am so grateful for the ministry of preaching, it gives me another reason why I'm excited about church plants. One of the reasons why I love the idea of planting churches is it, it has this idea that there will also be other preaching. And preaching is an incredible gift which God has given to the church for a variety of reasons. And let me give you one. Dave already took my thunder. Um, sorry. No, God has clearly has said something and moved us in the same direction. Many of you have probably have read through the book of Exodus. And I, in fact, have teached the book of Exodus. I teach it regularly every year. But there's a difference between reading it and teaching it than preaching it. Because when you read it, you read Exodus 1, 2, 3, 4, and you just read. When you're teaching the book of Exodus, you're going to teach it in its themes and in its context and where it fits in the grand scheme of all Scripture. What is its contribution to the whole redemptive story that God has placed before us? So reading has its gift, teaching has its gift, but preaching slows the congregation down so as to ask the question, Why does Moses name his first child Gershom? And that's why I love the ministry of preaching. Reading has its benefits. Teaching has its benefits. But preaching makes us think about a segment of Scripture as a people together and reflect on its impact in our present context. Many of you know that when you came into this world, the name in which your parents gave you was carefully considered. In fact, some of you who have children yourselves, you carefully considered, at least this is by by my understanding, in most situations, most of the time, I've heard of a couple times where parents don't put much thought into the children's names, but genuinely, we all take careful consideration what we're going to name our children, and so did your own parents. In fact, when I came to naming my own children, we went through this process. One of our children's names means gracious. 
the hope that maybe to themselves when they grow up, they would model the same grace which God has towards us. Another God beholds. A third town by the pool. It doesn't mean anything. Thank you. <laughs> what in the world does that mean? Of course, Lincoln means town by the pool, but even in our own history, right, the name became something more so as to draw out this idea of strong leadership characteristics. And as parents or children of parents, we're recognizing that the naming of a child is significant for the hope they might become, which is what should strike you as very odd when Moses names his first child Gershom. I am a sojourner. I'm a stranger. Another way you might state it, I am a nobody. I don't fit in. He lives in the land of Median. And you know where Median is at? It's like Tri-Cities in 1920. It, it, It has no place within the world which would cause a man to say, let's go visit Median. Moses names his first son Gershom because what's my place? If you consider the events of Moses' life in Exodus chapter 2 and consider him, this is how he has felt for 80 years of his life. Doesn't have a place to fit in. No family. No context to call his own. Constantly wondering where in the world am I supposed to be? So he names the struggles and challenges that he has in his own life to his first son, Gershom. I don't fit in. Kind of a downer. The first two, the first second, or the second chapter, we are placed within us or before us three situations where Moses is confronted with the reality that he is not taken by anyone. And I just want to do what the author is doing and just look at these three illustrations as Moses takes note of his position as being the outsider. Yet in all of this, as he recognizes he's a stranger, he's a sojourner, he has no place, I don't fit in for the first 80 years of his life. There's something about Moses that is quite intriguing about his character, which becomes very prominent throughout these three situations. So if you would ask the question with me, what makes him feel like a stranger? Then two, what is the characteristic that's being best presented before us as a result of Moses' character? You'll see that quite obviously that our first reflection is that he is indeed the stranger. Moses was the son of a Levite. He was a Hebrew boy. And the challenge that he found as we started even last week, that he grew up in a house that it wasn't his house. Being a Hebrew boy, Exodus 2.10, it wasn't in the reading this morning. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. 
context before us in Moses. Mother, trying to spare his life, has put him in the river. And he is received by a mother who is not his mother and accepted as a son. And he knows very well that this woman isn't his mother. I'm a stranger. And as he grows older, look at verse 11. You might wonder, as a child for the first 40 years of his life, as he grows up in the house of Pharaoh, where is his allegiance, being a Hebrew boy? Is it with his parents, biologically? Or is it with the daughter of Pharaoh who has spared his life? One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people. It might be a hint here. And that he sees himself more as a Hebrew than an Egyptian. And he went out to his brothers and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. One of his people stated again, maybe a hint. Maybe Moses, while growing up 40 years in the Egyptian house, has not truly become Egyptian yet somehow has kept some identity knowing truly who he is as a Hebrew. And he looked this way, well, excuse me, and he, um, sorry again in verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked at their burdens and he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, and he, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. A striking word, which actually is the word striking, is that Moses sees an Egyptian man striking his own. Moses, intending to intervene after a people who have been oppressed for so long, he intervenes by eliminating the one who is striking his own. Observing that maybe no one would see, he hides in the ground. Verse 13, you might think at this point, Moses is a Hebrew. He stands with the Hebrews. And so he comes in as the individual to be counted of them, but ultimately finds out he's not counted as one of them. Verse 13, so when he went out the next day, Maybe, hopefully, the perception would be after 40 years being the Egyptian and showing his commitment to the Hebrew community that the Hebrew community would take him as his own, invite him back into the community and see him as a brother. Next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, and you see the same word pop up again, why do you strike your companion? which is helpful for the reader, because at one point you might think that Moses is for his own, the Hebrews. But rather, what you begin to see here is that Moses thought if you can get rid of the one who strikes, then, then there would be peace. And he's, he's confused because now he's gone to his own and his own is doing what? Striking. And he's bothered by the fact Egyptian striking, but now my own people are striking. What are you doing? You don't hit your own, is the idea. 
And Moses is going to find himself in these three situations perceived in himself as the outsider. I don't fit in. And the reason why he doesn't see that he fits in is because no one sides with the one who's being hit. Whether it's Egyptian or Hebrew, he rather sees someone being wrongfully accused and he sides with the one who's being treated wrongfully and no one wants to side with him. And so when he sees his Hebrew brothers fighting, he's like, why in the world would you strike your own? The man turns to him, verse 14, and he answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? I like this. Just a few more chapters and Moses will be able to say, God, right here, he has nothing. In fact, because he has nothing, the fears in which he grew up in the Pharaoh's household, if you remember Exodus chapter 1 with me, right? Pharaoh perceived the Hebrew sons as the problem. And not only has Moses killed an Egyptian, he has now by his actions confirmed Pharaoh's concerns. Because now this Hebrew boy who grew up in his house with all the privileges with it has killed an Egyptian. Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Surely the thing is known. Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. Moses, considering his actions, as means of confirming Pharaoh's concerns has moved him to recognize now he has no place among the Egyptians and no place among his own. Why? Because he stepped in the place in the mediation before the one who was striking the innocent. Those are the first or who occurrence. And this man, once he realizes He is the stranger. He is the man who does not fit in. He is the man who stands alone, will run in fear. For fun, maybe after the service today, just type in, where is Median? It's not in Israel, nor is it in Egypt. It's quite the run. This man runs to a place which is out of the picture. And when he runs, verse 15, when, Mer- when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. All the concerns of Pharaoh confirmed about Hebrew boys. But Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. That would have been a downer. Forty years in the privileges of Pharaoh's house, now out in the middle of nowhere, at least he's got water. It's interesting to me is what the, what the writer, who is Moses himself, who writes the book of Exodus and Genesis, does next. He presents us with another third occurrence. And I'm thankful for the third occurrence, primarily because it shows us the character of Moses. He, he genuinely concern, is concerned for the innocent, even though it has placed him in a position where he just doesn't fit in. 
And the situation that he places before us is a familiar one that we once heard before. But in Genesis, but now in Exodus. Look with me in verse 16, the third occurrence of this stranger as he finds himself in the middle of nowhere. Now the priest of Median had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their flocks. The shepherds came and drove them away. That's one thing you don't do. You don't chase off daughters. Men exercising their authority chased off the daughters who are feeding their flocks. Previously, when an Egyptian strikes a Hebrew, Moses intervenes. When a Hebrew strikes a Hebrew, he intervenes. And when he sees women being taken advantage, the reader knows what's next. Moses has this desire to stand and protect. The shepherds, verse 17, came and drove them away, but Moses stood up, saved them, and watered their flocks. So when they came home to their father, Raoul, he said to the daughters, how is it that you have come home so soon today? Raoul, interesting. Later, we're going to be able to know this man is not Raoul, but Jethro. But here, the one occurrence, Raoul is introduced to us as friend of God. Moses, I mean, these first, this first the second chapter of Moses is going to depict 80 years of his life. And now, after 40 years of it, he has found himself in a house, Raoul, in the house in which is a friend of God. But his actions have had consequences. No one stands with him, not his own. In fact, this idea of standing against injustice is not just a historical idea which is often stood by yourself. For many men, even our own history, even our own culture's history in America, many individuals, men and women, have stand up against injustice and at times stood alone. Often being perceived not being of one group or another group. Moses has recognized the consequences of standing against injustice. It has cost him his house in Pharaoh. His own Hebrews have rejected him. Yet, a father with seven daughters who is a friend of God, what does he do? He takes them in. Quite cool what Moses is doing with this one who is totally out of place. The daughters, after being asked, how is it that you have come home so soon? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands. Notice how they label him. He's not a Hebrew. He's actually kept it quite the secret. From all physical appearance, he's an Egyptian. An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew the water for us and, and watered the flocks. He said to his daughters, what, where is he? <laughs> Like, this is a guy that has good character, bring him home, right? This is what every dad wants for his daughters to do, right? A man who stands with good character, Where's, why, has, why hasn't he come over for dinner yet? This is exactly what's going on. Bring him home. So why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat. 
And after he sees the good character in Moses himself, he allows Moses to dwell with, with him and he gives Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. He called his name Gershom. And he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Done. If you were to describe the first 40 years of your life in this way, it is interesting to me, it's going to be another 40 years for Moses. He's going to be 80 years old before he hears the words, Moses, I am the God of your father. Talk about feeling utterly alone, maybe abandoned, having no place as the result of being willing to stand in the gap when somebody's striking another. The consequences that he has faced have left him alone. And so he names his first son as the result of the way he has felt. Kershom. It's meant to drive the reader to reflect. Where is Moses at? Why is he... Is it, like, he literally feels alone. And in this context, you wonder, what's, what's going on in Egypt now that he's, a, he's gone? It turns us to the second point of his... Of his message here, or this is instruction in these, in this first or second chapter, in which you see, even though he's not in the position to rescue, God is. Would you, this is going to be our second point during those many days, is how this verse 23 starts. What is presented before us is that even though Moses, while he was willing to stand in the gap, the reason while it doesn't work is because somebody wasn't with him yet. But in the midst of all of this, God's watching. And I want to point out a few terms or, that are helpful to understand that even in Exodus chapter 1, while Israel is under oppression, these activities are not foreign to God's perception. Look with me in verse 23. During those many days... The king of Egypt died. The people of Israel ground. They're weary because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. One of the coolest things about Exodus is the reader is going to witness is that the God of the heavens hears, please. Moses can see it. He responds to it. And every time, at least the first two occasions here, he hasn't helped anything. And they cry out to help, and they're crying. Verse 23 continued. For rescue from the slavery came up to God. In verse 24, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. The term there, God heard their groaning, but the term that I want to think about is God remembered his covenant. Isn't the idea of like where you remembered where you put your keys? 
Adam knows me. Um, I lose my keys a lot. Um, That's why we have a safety team. The safety team's chief objective is to find my keys when I lose it. (laughs) The reality is, is that's how we often use the context of word remember. But the reality, what's being depicted here is God doesn't forget. The, The term carries more of the idea that God is committed to his promises. And he is ready now to engage in fulfilling them. Because the promises of which we read in Genesis is that to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he was going to make the nation an incredible nation which would impact the whole world. Through his nation, through this nation, there would be kings and ultimately a king who would be the king of kings. And it's here when he hears the groanings of Israel, he remembered his covenant, meaning he's ready. He's ready, he sees, he hears to start fulfilling the promises of these covenants. Which is in contrast to Moses in some regards. There's something about Moses which is respected. He sees the injustice and wants to solve it. But every time he intervenes to solve it by his own hands, it's quite ineffective of solving the problem. And the reader is waiting to see, well, then who can solve a problem like this? And God hears, he remembers, he's ready to now start delivering on his promises. And that's why the rest of the book of Exodus is awesome. Because if you get a man who loves what God loves, and that man is then empowered by God to do such things that which God does, the man is unstoppable. Not for who he is, but the one who is telling him to do these things. The problem that Moses had for the first 80 years of his life is running faster than God was. Now, his love for injustice wasn't the problem. His problem, maybe, was trusting in the God who would accomplish them, even without his hands. What's so cool about Moses, that when he went back and he goes back to Pharaoh, he's got a stick. He's got God. God remembered his covenant. It ends with Moses naming his son Gershon. I'm a nobody. I have no place. God saw he's ready. And if that was all you had for verse 24 and 25, that would be great. But there's more. Not only did God hear their groanings, and not only did he remember he's ready to, to, to fulfill his promises, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, God saw, meaning he's familiar with what's going on. And God knew. Moses chooses to leave the last statement with the term which you found in the very beginning of Genesis, and Adam knew his wife. Meaning, intimately involved in life together. For 400 years, 
not hearing the voice of God or inactivity with God, you might make the perception that God just doesn't care what's going on. But what's being declared here is that he was not only aware, not only did he hear, not only did he see, he himself is very intimately involved with what's going on. And he cares. He knows. Exodus 2 is fantastic. Here you have a man who just doesn't feel like he fits in. He sees the injustice and wants to take care of it. And every time he fails and it has led him out in the middle of a, no place, no land which any status, married to this woman and has a child, which he says, I just chucked this up as a wasted life. 80 years. That's just how this man feels. Love to go into Exodus 3. Can't, because that's next week. And we, we love the ministry of preaching, and we have to focus in on what's before us. But what is striking about the next chapter? The God who knows calls the man who has no place Moses. Moses, I know you. The man who's grown up in somebody else's house, abandoned by his own people, out in the middle of nowhere, this would have been the most comforting words after 80 years of life. I'm your God. I am with you. I'm ready. He calls his man to begin the process to delivering the people of Israel. I'd like to reflect on our convictional response. The table set before us. I mean, you and I are not unaware this issue of injustice not only plagued the land of Egypt, it plagues our own. It's not just Egyptians striking Hebrews. Hebrews are striking Hebrews. We strike our own. Like, the problem of sin doesn't rest in a culture or an it's thick throughout all humanity. And sometimes we have, throughout our own history, have attempted to solve it. The desire to solve it is God built within us. I think that is a God-like characteristic. But what we will see done without God is left to man's own imagination, which leads to further lawlessness. The injustice, if there is going to be justice, must be established by the one who is just. You might have missed it. And for some of you, you might feel like this is a right-hand turn. So I just ask you, bear with me. But in Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of it and Moses released from Pharaoh, Where does Moses sit? He sat down by a well. For you and I, Reliance, who has walked through Genesis carefully and now in Exodus, if you're familiar with what happens at a well, you you know exactly what's going to happen next. When Abraham, sent Isaac, when Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, the servant went to a foreign land that wasn't his own, 
sat by a well praying, Lord, please bring me a wife for Isaac. And behold, there was Rebekah. He says to the Lord, if she waters my whole flock of camels, she's the woman for Isaac. And then he introduces himself to Rebecca. Rebecca, she does. She waters the whole flock. And he, the servant, unveils himself as Abraham's servant, and she runs off to go tell Laban. Right? Laban? No. Well, Laban's her brother, but tell her family that this servant is coming. The servant's brought into the house. Rebecca is sent off back to the land where Isaac lives. Same thing happens with this Isaac when he has sons with Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, another scene of a well, in which this time now Jacob's not sent, he's fleeing, right? Because he made Esau upset because he stole the birthright. And so he flees as a result of his actions. And he finds himself at a well. And he sees the shepherdess. She was a woman who tended flocks. And the rock was too big to be moved by several men. Because you had to wait for all the other men to come and to move the rock. But when Jacob saw Rachel, (laughs) he moved the rock by himself. Rachel so amazed by this, Jacob just waters her flock asks who Jacob is, he unveils himself, she runs back to tell her family, and Jacob is brought in, works for Laban, seven years, gets Leah, works another seven years, get Rachel. The events that happen around the well. And then you get Moses. Last week I said, well, one of the reasons why we want to study Exodus is because we have the context for Genesis. And because we have the context for Genesis, you know when Moses is sitting down at a well, he's fleeing like Jacob. We know what's happening next. At wells, you find your future spouse. It's the modern day college experience where you go and you find the woman of your dreams. You bring her back to your family and it's, maybe we should build a well outside, I don't know. Um, (laughs) This is what we expect. At the wells, it's the meeting ground for future spouses. And sure enough, not only does one woman show up, <laughs> seven, seven women show up for Moses. And so the context of Genesis helps us understand the context of Exodus, and this is exactly what happens. He marries Zipporah. These themes get carried on to the rest of the scriptures. Men fleeing, sometimes being sent. They they build upon themselves. And one of the last well scenes in scriptures, you know where it's at? In John. One of the reasons why I wanted to study Genesis, it gives us context for Exodus, but the second reason I gave was Exodus is awesome. The third reason I gave You remember? No, probably not. That's fine. Exodus gives us, the the impact of Exodus and Genesis upon all the rest of scriptures is substantial. The table's before us. Like, we have a man who doesn't know who he is. In the last well scene we find ourselves in John chapter 4, mimics the events surrounding Jacob, the servant of Abraham, 
Moses, and Jesus. When Jesus began his ministry, he came to his own, John chapter 1, verse 11. Here's a man who doesn't feel like he fits in. Hebrew of Hebrews, the Hebrew, which was province to Hebrews. Came to his own, and his own did not receive it. See the weaving of Scripture. Moses is a man who doesn't fit in. The Egyptians, the Hebrews, and he's out in the middle of nowhere. Jesus himself will come to his own and will not be received by his own. As he begins to do his ministry, the disciples of John the Baptist are jealous. Popularity is the, the seed of success, and they've been prosperous. They have converted a lot of disciples, but now Jesus is on the scene. And this new Jesus on the scene, he's taken more disciples. And John the Baptist confronts his disciples and he says this. You're just going to have to trust me. I don't think I have this on the slide. But John chapter 3 is where I'm reading. And he says to his disciples as he confronts them, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And if you're a bridegroom looking for a wife, where do you go? Oh, well. <laughs> Which is why John chapter 4 is shaped the way he does. it's shaped. Exodus, Genesis begins to impact even the way I believe that the New Testament writers are writing. And as Jesus' popularity takes place, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hear about Jesus' ministry in Judea. And what does Jesus do? He leaves. Just as Jacob and the servant leave, and Jesus leaving, going to the Sea of Galilee, must go through Samaria, a foreign land. And as he gets to this foreign land, Samaria, a place in which the Jews called those who lived in Samaria half-breeds, he sits at a well at the sixth hour. Look at verse 6 of chapter 4. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was sixth hour. If we're reading our Bibles, and we're familiar with the well scene, what do we expect? We expect a woman who's unmarried to show up. And that's what happens. But this woman has been married five times and the current person that she's living with is not her husband. For the years that she has lived, she's probably felt out of place. No man will keep her. No one will hold on to her. And as she comes, <laughs> the whole issue about water shows up again. Look at verse 7. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Well, you expected something to happen around water, and the whole conversation is about water, except for this time, Jesus offers a water that will water the flock, or for, not flocks, but her for all eternity. She hears about this water. What is she like? <laughs> Can I have this kind of water so that I don't have to keep coming back? Look at verse 13 and 14. 
I'm paraphrasing. I would love to go through the whole chapter, but I want you to see how the scriptures are tied together. Why? The God in Exodus is the same God revealed in, Genesis, in, in John. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. She's going to go on to ask Jesus, well, man, give me this water. He's like, go, go get your husband. And she goes, I don't have one. And the God who knows, knows her. Jesus. That's right. Been married five times. Man you're living with? Not your husband. Not only is the God who sees or hears ready to fulfill his promises, he knows. And he knows this woman. Of all the people in which Jesus went to at Jacob's well, he goes out to meet a woman with the same, I would assume, position that Moses felt. And she's like, you look like a prophet to me. You know who I am. Where should we be worshiping, she asks. And Jesus says, well, there's an hour coming where we'll be worshiping in spirit. And she's like, we know the Messiah is coming. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. <laughs> Look at 26. And Jesus said to her, I will speak to you. I who speak to you am he. The God who has promised in his covenants is ready. And he is about to fulfill all the promises that he has promised. And the first person to hear it is this woman who's unmarried, who is the epitome of all human society, who is trying to find their place in this broken, fallen world, is told this. What does she do? When this Jesus unveils his identity, wow. If you're familiar with the, the well scenes before, when the person at the well unveils who they are, what does the woman do? She runs home. She can't contain herself, this Samaritan woman. And she does go to her home, but not just her home home. She went to the whole city. And she goes on to proclaim that the one who has, has known her, sees her, has now come, the Messiah, and revealed these things. And when their whole town comes out, John 4, 42, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Moses, 80 years old, when we get to Exodus chapter three, doesn't know what he's supposed to do. And God's going to show up and he's going to say, I'm going to save him. I'm ready. I know who you are. I can't speak, God. Don't worry, I'll be your mouth. Can Aaron come along? Sure, bring him along. And you see this gracious God 
moving Moses along into becoming who he is as Moses. And this Moses, at the end of his life, will say, another one's coming. It's better than me. He's going to save the whole world. I think it's fitting. The first place that Jesus makes his public ministry known is in a foreign land with a woman who's been married five times who can't figure out where her place in life is and says, I've been what you've been waiting for. And she goes and tells the rest of the, na- of the city. And the city comes forth and says, as we see, who is now the Savior of the world. Now, I understand. For some of you, that might have felt like a right-hand turn for Moses' situation. The purpose of me doing that is twofold. One, the God which you see in the Old Testament is the same God which you see in the New Testament. The impact of Genesis and Exodus on the rest of Scripture is substantial. We ought to read it, consider it, reflect on it, because the God, like the passions that Moses has are indeed good, but yet without God, they're nothing. And what we'll see, even in a fallen world today, the passions which we see in a fallen world, they are indeed right to call them out. But without God, our pursuits of them to be restored are worthless. The means by which we pursue injustice matters. With the God who solves injustice. Because if you do it with your own hands, it's worthless. That's the first reason. The second reason is the table's right there. And the God which gives us our identity is the one who made us. Not our passions, not our concerns, but God who defines us. And those passions and our concerns are things that God has given to us. But he is the God who sees, he knows, he's committed to his promises and is able to fulfill them. Exodus chapter 2 ends with that incredible phrase, God knew. And when you see Jesus, you see a man who knows not just the Hebrews, but the foreigners, which accounts you and I. And we can come before the table knowing this, that God demonstrated his love towards us, even that while we were under the reign of sin, Christ died for us. Even while we were sinners, God showed his type of love towards us in dying for our sins, knowing us. And as a result of his sacrifice, he has the ability to transform us into his image. And we can see that at the scenes at the well. That's right. Been married five times. Man you're sleeping with right now, not even your husband. But I'll receive you. I have been what you've been waiting for. I just would love to just sit around the table and reflect. The, the God which we know is the God which we were meant to enjoy. And I would ask you, as you take the cup and the bread, wait to take it together, but just worship the God who knows you has done exactly what you need in atoning for your sins and has allowed you to have a relationship with you. As a result of that, 
what we can do with our lives can have meaning. Lord, thank you for the grace at which we have in Christ Jesus.